0: Often, when people think of Tibetan Buddhism, they have a limited vision of that social reality, perhaps one that imagines monks sitting in meditation or focused on the Dalai Lama. Rarely is the historical role of female Buddhist masters central to one's understanding of contemporary Tibetan life. In Love Letters from Golok," a Tantric couple in modern Tibet, Holly Geli centers women's leadership through an introduction to the important Tantric master, Tara Lamo, through an examination of hagiographic literature, the personal letters between Tarelamo Lamo and her husband Namtrul Rinpoche, and field research, Gailey offers an in-depth study of the role of Buddhism in revitalization of Tibetan culture and identity in the post-Maoist period. Central to her analysis is understanding how hagiography aids in healing cultural trauma brought on by the minority policies of the Chinese Communist Party and the brutal years of the Cultural Revolution. The reframing of historical events fosters cultural revival in Tibet, envisioned through a Buddhist lens. In contrast to the lofty images presented in biographies, the 56 letters exchanged between Tarai Lamo and Namtral Rinpoche offer a personal self narration of their relationship, which is steeped in tantric imagery, Tibetan folk genres, and Buddhist cosmology. In our conversation, we discuss the Nyingma Buddhist tradition, the effects of the Maoist period on Tibetans, forms of agency, ethnographic accounts of ritual ceremonies, female religious authority, revelatory texts and treasure teachings during degenerate times, contemporary preservation of their teachings through multimedia sources, the couple's activities within the community, and Tara Lamo's legacy today. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for listening to New Books in Religion. Without any further delay, here's my conversation with Holly Gailey about her wonderful new book, Love Letters from Golok, A Tantric Couple in Modern Tibet, published with Columbia University Press in 2016. Welcome, Holly. Thanks for joining us on New Books in Religion. How, how are you?
1: I'm good. Thanks for having me here, Christian. Yeah,
0: so Love Letters from Golok was a really wonderful book. I really enjoyed it. I'm looking forward to talking about the project. Uh, we always start here at New Books in Religion a little bit about our authors, though. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about uh, what brought you to the study of religion, perhaps uh, moments or mentors that have been influential in uh, shaping the, the, the subjects you're interested in, the topics you explore? How did you end up where you are?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I have to say, I got into um, the study of Tibetan Buddhism really through travel. So um, I did, uh, took a year off during college and traveled to India, and also uh, after college, saved up money and went back to Asia and spent time. Um, actually, got really attracted to sort of Himalayan regions and traveled from Darjeeling to Dharamsala. And um, stayed really close to Tibetan Buddhist communities. So that was the really beginning of my interest in both Buddhism and studying the Tibetan language. And I did my MA at Naropa University and uh, fell in love with translating Tibetan texts. And so I uh, applied for PhD at Harvard um, at the time when Janik Yatso was just in the process of being hired. And so um, she's been an indelible influence on me. Um, and I think I started getting um, interested in, in studying the revelatory tradition of terma or um, Tibetan treasures due to her influence. And actually the subject of my book, Love Letters from Golok, a Tantra Couple in Modern Tibet, uh, Kondra Tarelamo, the protagonist of the book, uh, we started to read her um, biography or Namtar uh, in, um, in a, a Tibetan class. And I asked her, I was sort of in that class with other students who were all men, and I said, you know, can I work on this? And nobody hmm. had discovered her yet, and I went to Golok uh, th- that year, 2004, and wanted to retrieve the entirety of her collected works with her partner, Nam Chul Rinpoche. Um, there was a partial collection at the Tibetan Buddhist Resource Center, a wonderful online source that um, the late uh, E. Jean Smith had uh, created. It's an incredible um, treasure trove of Tibetan literature that he has preserved digitally. And um, so I went to retrieve the rest of their corpus uh, and met Namcho Rempache, Khandro Tare Lamo, had passed away, and he gave me uh, their entire corpus and this extra volume addendum, which was their uh, letters. And somehow, you know, her namtars is fairly brief. Um, actually, most of her life story takes place in Namcho Rempache's Uh, namtar or um, biography. Namtar means a story of complete liberation. I use hagiography in the book because it's a third person kind of hagiographic account of their life. Um, So, uh, you know, I wasn't sure that that would make a dissertation. But when I got those letters um, and he told me about how they were exchanged at the cusp of um, right after the um, cultural Revolution, so at the cusp of liberalization in across China, um, in both the political, economic, and religious spheres, um, I got really excited. And the letters that I brought back, um, it was a facsimile edition, were quite challenging to go through. Um, they're all almost entirely in verse. And um, the poetic styles, I really, at that point, knew nothing about. And uh uh but it was so exciting because you know, it's really the first collection of love letters to come to light. And, you know, as I waded through them, I saw how many um complex and rich kind of dimensions were included in there, a kind of prophetic um dimension about their role in cultural revitalization and um uh, in the region of Golok and beyond, but also this personal affection that they developed across their correspondence. So that's really what set me on my way.
0: Yeah uh it's 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 amazing to kind of hear the story and to to read it in your account cuz it really does seem like uh such a, a wonderful set of accidents that happen in, in terms of bringing you to the project uh because it really explores uh the subject of uh Tara Lama in in such fascinating ways um and i think probably for many listeners uh when they think of tibetan buddhism they think of men and monks specifically um so perhaps to kind of help us enter into the project, um, what just briefly, what what do people need to know a little bit about uh, the, the Nyingma tradition, uh, more specifically about recent Tibetan history during the kind of time period you're, you're working on?
1: Uh, well, first, let me just say, um, Tibetans have a conception for uh, such accidents, and it's called auspicious coincidence or tashi tendrils. So... Um, <laughs> So it was a wonderful kind of circumstances coming together. And I I think actually a lot of scholarship comes out of such um, coincidences. And it's certainly an important theme uh, for them in their writings. Uh, The Nyingma tradition, I think the important thing to to note there is that um, because uh, those teachings uh, or those lineages are passed oftentimes through the family, and um, it allows a cultural space for uh, female Tantric masters that is not available in more monasticized traditions. Now, over time, the Nyingma tradition also became monasticized. But the lineage holders are still very often uh, through the family and even reincarnation schemes, which are used Elsewhere in Tibetan Buddhism, in the Gelug tradition with the Dalai Lamas or the line of Karmapas, those umpteen reincarnate Lamas, you know, associated with various monasteries and lineages, um, that was really, that whole Tulku tradition or the tradition of reincarnate Lamas was instigated to resolve the problem of monastic succession and how you, how Lineages pass in the absence of family traditions, but in the Nyingma and the Sakya, it's it's really and those those lineages trace their their histories all the way back to um, the early propagation of Buddhism in Tibet in the imperial period, seventh and ninth century, when Tibet was this vast empire. Um, you know those traditions that that have a family succession, I think, have more space for female. Um, roles. Um, Certainly the female members of the traditions are often uh, really well trained and included in esoteric teachings. I think Contra Tarellamo's rise to prominence is in some sense um, an accident again or a coincidence of history um, to the extent that, um, so she grew up and was trained before really the socialist transformation of Tibetan areas was underway. So she was born in 1938. Um, she received an esoteric training from the great masters of her day. Golok was a thriving center for the Nyingma tradition and for the revelation of terma or treasures. Um, and she was deeply embedded in that as the daughter of a well-known Tertan or treasure revealer in her region. So um, and she had three brothers who were all reincarnate Lamas. She herself was recognized as the reincarnation of, of two figures um, proximate in time and place, um, one male and one female. And, um, and though in the late 1950s, um, after the People's Liberation Army had come into Tibetan areas, and originally, of course, they had promised a kind of gradual transformation of those minority areas where they had initially a sensitivity to preserving their culture. And that that sort of shifted, and they decided to accelerate the socialist transformation in those areas in the late 1950s. Um, and um, that meant the imprisonment of a lot of... Uh, religious and political leaders. And so her three brothers were all imprisoned. Her first husband was imprisoned, and they died in prison in the late 50s, early 1960s. So a whole generation really was lost. And Namcha Rinpoche was six years her junior, so um, who had become her second husband. So he, he was too young at that point to to be considered a leader or a threat of any kind. So he became the secretary of his work unit. And Khandro Tarilamo, I think because she was a woman, was also spared. And um, she she remained really important to her local community, um, even though she was forced to work as an ordinary herder and be part of um, hard labor. Um, building, you know, construction projects, etc., that other nomads and, and Tibetans were engaged in. And then, it, you know, it was until after the death of Mao and the end of the Cultural Revolution that the possibility of revitalizing Buddhism and other um, kind of aspects of Tibetan culture was possible. So the whole period from the late 1950s to the late 1970s. Really, the public observance of religion was um, prohibited. I mean, with some some uh, exceptions. So, um, so it's really a, a story of um, the kind of suppression of the tradition, and then this incredible opportunity to revitalize it. And she and Namchhorimpe were really leaders in that process in the region of Golok. Mm.
0: Now, uh, part of what you're doing in the book is bringing in these kind of very different types of sources to understand how female authority is being uh, kind of narrated and how Tibetan traditions are being uh, revitalized uh, and kind of re-narrated in, in new ways. Um, and you begin with uh, one text called Spiraling Vine of Faith, uh, which is one of these biographies of uh, Tare Lomo. Can you tell us uh, what what's going on with this text? Um, what in what ways is female religious authority asserted within it, um, and then how we might understand it within kind of the the larger context of Tibetan
1: literature. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, Spiraling Vine of Faith is the liberation story of Tare Lamo, and what's really interesting um, and struck me on the first reading that we, we did in that class, and actually we never got to Tare Lamo's own story, which is quite interesting because the first half of her biography is really a rehearsal of female antecedents who she is understood to be an emanation of. So the most famous would be Yeshe Tsogyal, uh, a central figure to the lore of the imperial period, again, that 7th and 19th century, the advent of Buddhism in Tibet. And then a more approximate figure, Sarah Kondro, who um, was a um, renowned uh, female master of the previous generation. And so those, those biographies are actually, sections of those biographies are included inspiring Spiraling Vine of Faith. And you don't get to Kondro Tarellamo's story until halfway through. So that to me was already a really interesting kind of problem of, you know, w- why is it necessary to have this long preamble? And I theorize that that's really important to establishing her religious authority, that there's a kind of, um, that, that, in general, in this revelatory tradition of um, terma or um, treasure revelation, there usually is some rehearsal of previous lives, some list of previous lives to, um, to validate the religious authority of these figures who are basically revealing texts that have the status of scripture in the Nyingma tradition. But in her case, it's much longer than is normal. Usually that takes just a, a few pages. A list of figures, some prophecies from well-known other kind of contemporary, contemporaneous religious figures, and then they move into the life story of the master. So so you know, I, I make a case that although in actuality in, in a in the in the sense of um thinking about the social terms in which she gains religious authority. It's really through family, through being the daughter of a well-known religious figure and being able to then be recognized early in life and receive this um, early esoteric training. But in terms of this, so that's in terms of this social system, but in terms of the symbolic system, she still needs a kind of place in that and that's achieved through these um, past lives that she's considered an emanation of, and also through um, evoking the category of the Dakini, which is a class of um, female Tantric deities. And um, so through past lives and through a kind of homology to, in her case, Vajrayogini and Sarasvati and other female um, Tantric deities, that she then has a sort of um, place placeholder in the symbolic system. And so both of those, I argue, um, in chapter one, where I really go into spiraling vine of faith and female religious authority, both of those, I argue, sort of create a cultural space for her to later in life then be an important religious figure.
0: Hmm. Um, now in the next chapter, you, you kind of focus more broadly on kind of the role of hagiography in healing uh, this this cultural trauma that uh, Tibetans have gone through, uh, almost as a, a site for uh, an alternative narration of Tibetan identity and history. Um, so how does Buddhism serve as a kind of new interpretive framework for for understanding cultural trauma, and why why would authors want to do this, perhaps? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, so chapter two is really where I make an argument about the genre of hagiography, in particular in the post-Mao era, um, and talk about a kind of collusion between self-censorship, censorship, so not wanting to say anything controversial um, controversial given the sensitivity of the Tibet question, and then the sort of traditional norms of hagiography, which are focused on um, you know, religious figures and especially when narrated in the third person, quite miraculous in nature um, and emphasizing their ritual activities and and really not focused on um, the kind of quotidian, the sort of elements of, of daily life in which then the social realities, especially of the, the, the really devastating period, two decades between the late 1950s and late 1970s, those are completely um, set in the background. So, um, you know, what I argue that this allows, especially for the narration of her life during that time through a series of miracle tales is to really, um, recenter the telling of history, um, on Buddhist masters. So to recenter it, um, with Tibetans as the agents of their own history. And so this is a kind of intervention in or building on Deepesh Chakrabarti's work on minority voices and subaltern agency, where he talks about the writing of history, um, you know, from a minority point of view, by which he means both marginalized populations, but also minority in terms of epistemic frameworks. So for him in particular, he evo- evokes religious frameworks. So, how does the subaltern assert agency when often religious? frameworks kind of put the credit on some transcendent, you know, uh, forces that are operating within history. So I take up that problematic and think about Buddhist ways to narrate history and um, the creation of of a Buddhist framework in which then lives are and Tibetan history is narrated. So I do that in this chapter, in terms of thinking of cultural trauma, and then I do it again in chapter four when I look at the kind of prophetic framework in which their letters envision their life together. And, um, and in there, I talk really about um, healing the damage done to Buddhism and uh, Tibetans. And in chapter two, I focus more on what it means to sort of have a miracle story set in a period um, miracles presume a kind of superhuman agency on the part of a saint, in this case, Kondo Tadellamo. And, um, and of course, that's outside of the epistemic framework of history, but what it allows is a kind of um, triumphant Tibetan agency in the midst of the devastation, and also a kind of reassurance that even though so many great masters died, that the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas never abandoned the Tibetan people, they worked in their midst in these very, uh, localized ways.
0: Now, uh, in the middle of the book, you, you move from, uh, these biographies or hagiographies to these personal letters, which are really, uh, fascinating. I mean, it seems like such a, a find that you were able to, to look at these. Um, so you have these 56 letters exchanged over, uh, uh, you know, about a three year period. Um, what types of literary strategies did these couples use to uh, negotiate the terms of their union in these letters and uh, how did they narrate their relationship, uh, you know, in this kind of, uh, I guess across multiple lifetimes or generations uh, as the, as they uh, kind of placed it within these communications.
1: Yeah. So um so first of all, they they, they lived in um, two separate counties, which were across province borders. So her in Pema County in Qinghai Province, him in Serta County in Sichuan Province. Um, those areas used to be very much um, uh, because they they're part of the same neighborhood and or neighboring regions, and also part of a, a kind of unified cultural um, region, if you will. So. So um, Tare Lamo's family had traversed that whole, um, that whole area in her youth and also um, the broader area of Golok. But because of the province boundaries and because travel was restricted at that time, they actually only got to meet once during the a little over a year-long period of their correspondence when Nam Churambuche surreptitiously made his way across that border To visit her and meet her relatives. So what's really exciting about the letters is that the bulk of their courtship takes place and the letters were secretly exchanged. They had a messenger who, you know, went by horseback between them. The letters were batched. Um, That, of course, leads to the complication of not knowing um, exactly the, the sequence of them, I've had to reconstruct that. Um, so we have the collection of his letters and the collection of her letters. But oftentimes in Tibetan literature, when you have the the letters of a great master, you only have one side of the correspondence. You have the letters of that Buddhist master preserved, but you don't know who the interlocutors are often. Or if you know who they are and you can identify them, you don't know what was contained in their side of the correspondence. So here we have both sides of the correspondence, even though we can't sort of match them exactly chronologically. I I was able to reconstruct that sequence in broad strokes. And and what's contained in there is just really incredible. I mean, you have, on the one hand, this sort of prophetic strain, um, their own articulation of... um, he, you know aspiring to heal the damage to Buddhism and sentient beings meaning Tibetans in their in their region um, after this period of, of devastation so they only they only sort of refer to the devastation of the Maoist period obliquely as degenerate times and what they're appropriating is a long-standing kind of narrative framework that's particular to the Nyingma tradition and to um, terma or treasure revelation, which is that there are sort of these periods of decline in in the Buddhist teachings. And then that calls forth um, the necessity of fresh revelations traced back to the advent of um, Buddhism in Tibet, figures like Padma Sambhava and Yeshe Sogya. Um, and and those those teachings are understood to be embedded in the Tibetan and Himalayan landscape and also in the minds of particular um, predestined disciples who become tertans or treasure revealers. So both Namtrinpa and tarelamo Lamo trace their past lives all the way back to the eighth century as dis- direct disciples of Padmasambhava. For for um, Khandro Tare Lamo, that's Yeshe Sogyal. For Namcharimpache, that's Namkhai and he was recognized in his youth as the fourth emanation of, of um, Namkai Ningpo, of his monastery, Zhuchen um, Monastery in Serta. So those are publicly recognized identities. And, um, and so they, they, they borrow this, this long-standing narrative to be able to narrate or situate their, their own prophetic destiny at their historic moment, at the end of the Maoist period and um and so then the revelation of terma because these these teachings have been hidden in the sort of depths of their minds they use um tantric practices of sexual union in order to be able to access the depth of mind and this is throughout the treasure tradition which began you know in the 11th century traced all the way back to the 11th century of um tibetan history so um so it requires a kind of tantric partnership, but usually it's the male who gets credited with the revelations and the female partner is in a more um, supportive role. And in this case, their whole corpus of revelations is jointly attributed. And they took turns, you know, later in life, once they were united in 1980, um, you know, uh, recalling the symbolic, you um, uh, kind of um, sort of either seed syllables or lines of symbolic script that trigger the memory of the revelation. So they took turns discovering that and decoding that. And so um, very much a, a partnership. But, it, but it, in the letters themselves, there's this prophetic aspect. There's also these tantalizing then sexual innuendos, drawing on tantric code, there's also um, the blossoming of their personal affection, and they they use so the whole thing is um, almost entirely in verse, and some of it's quite formal and prophetic, and others they break into you know local love song styles. So it's it's really animated, and um, you know part of what I argue, at least in chapter three. Is is that there's a kind of romantic love, as sociologist Anthony Giddens talks about it, where they're where they're um, not only um, is there tremendous affection, but there's a kind of mutual narrative of being uniquely compatible. And they do that both in prophetic and personal terms. So some of their love songs, which are drawing in folk song styles, will talk about how they're inseparable. Not just across lives through, you know, their past life genealogy, but as a mountain lion and its, uh, or a snow lion and its mountain perch, or like a gold-eyed fish and a turquoise lake, or like the tigress and um, and its jungle habitat. So it uses all these kind of folk metaphors for love and companionship and and. What's so wonderful about that is it really humanizes them. So their, their namtar or stories of complete liberation, their hagiographies, are narrated by in the third person by a devoted disciple and historian. So they're very elevated in those. But the letters give us this incredible um, window into them, their, the more human side of their relationship, their, their, their emotions, but also the way that in chapter 4, I sort of discuss um, how how they view their historic moment and the kind of contingency, the, you know, even within this sort of prophetic um, vision that they're destined to be together and they're destined to reveal these terma, it's still the coincidence. So here we come back to this term auspicious coincidence. The coincidence, the causes and conditions have to come together in order for them to be able to reveal... Um, their treasures or terma, their, their esoteric teachings and ritual practices that will help revitalize Buddhism in Golok. So there's very much a sense of their uncertainty, their their mutual support, their gaining of confidence, their, um, the way that um, actually their love starts to allow the the um, the memory, this sort of visionary memory to unfold. And, um, usually that's understood to happen through these, um, sexual tantric practices. So that's something really unique in the letters that it's actually love and their affection that that enables the memory process and the visionary process to start to unfold. So there's really a a lot, um, in the letters. They're, They're complex, they're dense, and they're really, uh, delightful to read. I'm actually preparing, um, a translation of them uh, for publication um, should be within the next year that they come out.
0: That's great. Yeah. I, and uh, as a reader, um, especially somebody who's not uh, a Tibetanologist or anything like that, it was uh, really helpful to kind of see them in contrast to the hagiographies. It really kind of drew out the unique nature of, of both types of literary genres. Um and towards the end of the book, you you return to a another hagiography uh, called the Jewel Garland, um, which is a post nineteen eighties account of the couple's lives. Um, what's what's going on with this text? How does this account uh, narrate the activities uh, they're doing with the community?
1: Yeah, so Jewel Garland is actually the the complete liberation of Namchharimpa. So it's his hagiography. And the, the two of them, Spiraling Vine of and Jewel Garland, actually were published together in a single um, text. The reason I, I place it later is because um, their activities together as a couple are actually embedded in his hagiography. So this is part of the complexity of Kondotare Lamo's life story as it unfolds, because on the one hand, you have her youth and um, her religious training and her miracle tales during the Cultural Revolution and period years leading up to it, all in her own hagiography. And then at about the age of forty, it just stops and says, "Well, the rest of her life can be found in Jewel Garland." <laughs> so really, her religious activities in in their public expression are found in his life story. And this is something really unique because Jewel Garland. It, it contains the, um, the story of Nam Shurumpach's youth, um, but those are only the first 20 pages of a more than 100-page hagiography. So the bulk of his life story is their life story as a couple. So they operate as joint protagonists. It's about 20 pages that introduces her into his life story. There are excerpts of the letters. There are prophecies. So it's really, it makes a really big deal about her entrance into his life. And she was quite prominent, I, I argue, more prominent than he was at the time. But, but partnering with him enabled her to be a much more public figure because usually these chondromas, these sort of socially recognized. Um, female figures who are seen by their communities to be realized or enlightened, usually they they lead very kind of um, quiet lives. They, they might give esoteric teachings to small groups of people, but they don't travel monastery to monastery sitting on the high thrones presiding over rituals with, you know, um, thousands of people. That's very, very rare. Um, so, so her kind of uniting with um, Namchom Pate allowed her to play a much more public role. And so, Chapter Five, which looks at um, the geography of cultural revitalization, is really thinking about how how is that narrated with a tantric couple at the at the center of the of the um, kind of narration. And so I draw on Charlene Makeley's work where she talks about um, this sort of post Mao era as a remodelization process where, um, where basically in her case, she's talking about an area much farther North Labrang Monastery in Omdo and the kind of masculine alliances between um, Buddhist monastic hierarchs and tribal Tibetan tribal leaders and how they kind of together have, um, reconstituted these sort of masculine alliances and, and, um, and she focuses on a particular ritual that, that contains in it a kind of subjugation ritual. So it's really a lot about masculinity and violence and, and as a ritual metaphor. And in this case, um, you know, we have the unique situation of a tantric couple who traveled and taught side by side on elevated th- um, thrones and presided over large scale rituals. So at the center of the mandala or the sacred circle, um, uh, mandalas, you know, we know uh, here in the um, in North America, you know, people are familiar with sand mandalas, these intricate uh, drawings. I'm uh, sorry. I'm um, uh, artwork that's made out of little grains of sand that monks put together. Those are those are really two-dimensional representations of a three-dimensional palace of a deity. And then the deity is the inhabitant of that particular mandala. And oftentimes that's a deity in union with consort. And so here you have the kind of iconography of Yabyum, which is um, male and female deities in union that is so central to Tibetan ritual and iconography and artwork. And you have that actualized in this in this couple. And rather than a kind of metaphor of subjugation, um, they use the metaphor of healing. So in their letters and also in the Namtar. Um, and this is something um, that you see more broadly of contemporary... Um, Namtar or hagiography—they're using a traditional genre, but there's some very unique features. So I mentioned the sort of way that history is being narrated. They also say that the purpose now is not just to engender faith, but to heal faith, debas uh, soa. So there's a sense of of the needing for for healing, and um, they do that um, in jewel garland through making re-establishing people connections and place connections. So the the notion of reestablishing connectivity between people and places through their revelations and through their ritual activity is kind of the the central way that their um, lives together, traveling and teaching during the 1980s and 90s, is narrated. And David Germano from University of Virginia has actually talked about how the treasure tradition or the terma tradition in the region of Golok, one of the reasons it's been so vibrant is that it has this ability to reconnect or what he calls remember the dismembered landscape of Tibet. So there's a way that the sort of visionary ability to reactivate pilgrimage sites, to to um, to introduce, you know, um, new scriptures or hitherto unknown scriptures, but that have this sort of ancient pedigree. All of these things are ways, you know, to – to as those teachings are given or as those pilgrimages are undertaken, basically Tibetan communities are reconstituted with Buddhist masters at the center of the mandala. So that's the sort of – that's the sort of argument that I make vis-à-vis um, Jewel Garland as a hagiography.
0: Hmm. Um, now you also uh, – tell us a little bit about the uh... – the, the later life of the couple. Um, Tara Lomo dies in the early two thousands. Um, her husband dies in, I think, 2011. Um, can you tell us a little bit about some of the kind of, uh, their, their later role within the community and then perhaps a little bit about, uh, the legacy of this, uh, woman and this couple, uh, within the region?
1: Yeah. So, um, their Namtar basically go up until, um, 1996. It's published in 1997. And so um, I had asked Namcha Rinpoche on several occasions if he could narrate for me the end of Tare Lamo's life. and um, And he sort of put me off for a while. And then And then when, you know, and it's, it's traditional actually in in Buddhist texts, you always hear of people asking once, twice, and and the third time is sort of the magical, you know, now or never moment. And so it was the third time I asked him and he said, well, I don't really remember. And I thought, oh, you know, that's a sort of polite way of saying, you know, (laughs) sorry, I don't have time or something. And, um, and, and then he started to, but he kept going. He said, you know, we just did the same old things. We went to the same series of monasteries. So they had this group of monasteries um, in the region that they went to and visited and did rituals at and and um, gave money to and helped support the monastic populations, help um, with rebuilding projects that were quite involved um, regionally. And um, and were teachers to the mamas at those monasteries. So so he said we just went to the same places again and again. And then you know we got tired and people started to come more to Nienlong and and um, their home monastery in Serta. And so there's not much to say. And I I was almost going to give up until I noticed that um when his attendant was actually getting out um these astrological charts for those years. And I realized like, oh, he's going to consult the records. And it gave me mm-hmm. this incredible insight into the hagiographic process because they they consult these um, astrological charts, which are now made in kind of these paperback forms that they flip through to find auspicious days to hold ritual occasions. But they also then record in there what they've done. And so they become this record that can be consulted for the later reconstruction of their lives. So. So I kind you know and and Pema Asaltai, who's the one who composed *Firing Vine of Faith* and Jill Garland in association with a government agency um, that he worked for um, you know he's he told me that they mainly were the ones who gave him the narrative and then he also consulted elders in the region so um, and I did the same I actually sort of um, you know I I consulted their Namtar. I interviewed Namcha Rinpoche many times, but I also traveled throughout Golok trying to collect stories of Khandra Tare Lamo. So in some ways, I was sort of unwittingly replicating in a kind of imperfect way as an outsider, the, the hagiographic process. Um, hmm. But uh, once he got out those charts, you know, he did, he did sort of say the main teachings they gave each year but then really what was amazing was the narration of her, you know, her final years. And then there's also a text that he had given me the first time I met him. That's her last testament that he composed based on her final hours. So um, those those two together are quite a, a touching account of, you know, um, seeing signs of her death. Again, the way that... that um, that you know, unfortunate circumstances are narrated is really, really interesting in the way they use karma to explain that. And um, there's a lot of prophecy wrapped in that, that there was a prophecy she'd encounter a certain number of obstacles in her life, but the last one couldn't be overcome. And it's a way to sort of reconcile um oneself to, you know, um uncontrollable circumstances. So, And then the other thing, though, in that chapter, which is really the epilogue, is this beautiful um, final letter that that has been taken out in the republishing of their collection of letters um, in paperback form, which I find really interesting. But it's the final letter in the original collection he gave me, a facsimile edition, and it was written on the year anniversary of her death. And, and again, in really human terms, Nam just, you know, um, shows himself as, you know, in the depth of anguish and sorrow and tears cascading in a constant stream and being distraught and audibly wailing, alas, and, you know, and, and just, um, you know, really grieving her absence. And then her appearing in a vision to um, assert once again their inseparability, and so there's this sort of, you know, there's a couple things going on there. There's the, there's their separation early on across province borders, and yet they were asserting their inseparability across lifetimes and the power of their karma and destiny to bring them back together. And then here, after her death, again she's she's in his recollection of, of, of this vision, she is is actually saying once again that they're inseparable. And, and he told me that. He said, she's with me all the time. Every time I'm teaching, she's by my side. And um, I happen to have the passage right here. It's really beautiful. Um, in this vision, she says, even when separated in the manner of relative appearances, in the definitive truth, fundamentally, we've never been apart from your indestructible original mind beyond measure. I didn't go anywhere. There was nowhere else for me to go. So this, this beautiful sense of being inseparable, you know, even after death. And I have to say he, he really kept her legacy alive. You know, he, um, all, all the, um, kind of audiovisual materials, um, Buddhist monasteries are producing a lot of audiovisual materials with um, songs of devotion and pop songs. And some of them include their advice. Some of them are written by monastics, even llamas. And, um, you know, all in, in posters and amulets, it's always the two of them as a couple depicted. And well, you know, all the way until his death. And then in the transition to to his son as a lineage holder, then I started to see pictures of Nam and his son, which is a, a real shift. But be, while Nam was alive, it was he, it was always him together with Tare Lamo as he would speak. So when he narrated the, the last years of their lives, he would say, We too did this and that, and even the dream of us too. So they're sort of, again, like joint protagonists in his own narration of their lives. And of course, they created this beautiful reliquary to hers, to her that was was there in a special shrine room in the family compound after he passed away so she passed away in 2002 after he passed away in 2011 there was an identical sized you know designed reliquary put in the same room and connected by special cords um and so this sense of them being inseparable in that way um what's interesting about her legacy is that um her reincarnation um, at this point seems to be uh, in exile, whereas Namcha reincarnation actually has taken place within the family of his son, Toku Laksam, who is identified as the reincarnation of Tare Lamo's own son from her first marriage, who died actually in the mid-1970s. So there's this really interesting way that... They kind of try to join family streams through reincarnation schemas, but um, but it means that her reincarnation, you know, may or may not be a lineage holder of their teachings. But certainly, his reincarnation um, as Tukulaksam's son will be the main lineage holder. And I should mention that Tukulaksam had seven children, six daughters. They kept trying the seventh was a son and he was almost immediately recognized as the reincarnation of his grandfather. Hmm.
0: Uh, It's it's an amazing story and uh, it sounds like there's a lot more work uh, to be done. And maybe not all by you, but uh, (laughs) it sounds like there's a lot more. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the things you are working on now?
1: Sure. Um, So uh, as I mentioned, I just completed um, the translation of their uh, hagiographies and letters, select letters. I took, chose about two-thirds of them, some of the denser prophetic ones um, I omitted. Uh, And those are going to be coming out in a book called inseparable across lifetimes, the lives and letters of the Tibetan visionaries, Nantra Rinpoche and Khandra Tade Lamo Mm -hmm. through Shambhala publication. So a popular Buddhist press Mm -hmm. so that they can be available kind of more widely. Um, And so I have an introduction in there that that um, summarizes their context. And but really, I wanted to make available this amazing source material and, um, and then I also have an article coming out in an edited volume by Karma Lecce Somo on Buddhist feminisms and femininity, where I look at three different biographies of Kondratare Lamo and compare how they characterize her um, in gendered terms. So really thinking about male clerical um, authors who are writing about female visionaries. And there's a lot of um, overlaps in kind of literary strategies, actually, with the writing of female saints in Christian history. So I draw on some of that scholarship to make some points, but really think about um, geography and the sort of social location of these various male cleric um, biographers of her life. Um, parallel to this project on Konjuchara Lama and um, I've been working pretty much all along um, on a Buddhist ecumenical institute called Larang Buddhist Academy or Larangar, which is quite internationally well-known and um, looking at works of advice to the laity by its founder, Kempo Jigmi Punsock and some of his successors like Kempo Tsuchun Lojo and um, Kempo Riktar, who's also, um, written about Tare Lamo. So I've been really interested in especially um, Buddhist ethics and how that um, interweaves with uh, cultural revitalization efforts. So I have several articles that have been in um, uh, Journal of Buddhist Ethics, Journal of Religious Ethics, Contemporary Buddhism, um, Himalaya Journal, but also a new one coming out in the Oxford Handbook of Buddhist Ethics on Contemporary Buddhist ethics in contemporary Tibet. And so that, for the general reader, that, that might be of interest because it gives a, a, a kind of broad overview. And now I'm I'm getting interested in, you know, other projects. who um, Linkpa, who um, is a predecessor of Tare Lamo in Golok, also part of this stream of Tibetan um, treasure revelation. Um, he's a progenitor of a lineage that Tare Lamo married into. Her root teacher was his grandson and emanation. So I'm starting to get interested in his song's and advice to um, female disciples and trying to just recover a broader social history in that area. And um, we'll see where that goes and uh, what other journeys I might make. I'm also really interested in the transnational transmission of Tibetan Buddhism uh, to North America and Europe, and um, translation issues, both translation of literary genres and um, translation, cultural translation. So, I co edited with Joshua Shapiro an article called, I mean, a, a book of translations called um, A Gathering of Brilliant Moons Practice Advice from the Rime Masters of Tibet. So, looking at um, the genre of um, Sheldon, which is works of advice, in this case on meditation rather than ethics. And, and, you know, how how do we translate specific genres to capture their um, special qualities so that we're not just consumed with a kind of scholastic producing literal translations, but we're really starting to get sophisticated enough to treat Tibetan literature as literature and start to distinguish between different genres of poetry or verse or song and different styles of, of writings like... Um, down advice literature or um, other more colloquial expressions.
0: Hmm. Sounds like you've been very busy and uh, some important challenges you're, you're tackling. So thank you for your work, Holly, and uh, thanks for taking the time to talk about your wonderful book here.
1: Thanks, Christian, for having me. Really enjoyed our time together.
0: That was my conversation with Holly Gailey about her wonderful new book, Love Letters from Golok. A Tantric Couple in Modern Tibet, published with Columbia University Press in 2016. Thanks for listening to another episode of New Books in Religion.